There's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Hello, and welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Fashion has moved from the runway to the screen. Well, it's a logical development because the internet loves moving image, right? There was a wonderful fashion film where the porters from the designer carried these little minuscule maquettes of dresses through an enchanted forest to various haute couture clients, um, which I thought was fantastic and, and beautifully done. We'll talk with Robert Farah, Silva Sunsbo, and other fashion insiders about the growth of fashion films during a year spent staring at screens and what this means for the future of the runway show. This is a rebroadcast of a story that aired earlier this year. And it starts with Kathy Gohari. She's president-elect of the Rodeo Drive Committee. It seems to be we're heading in the right direction. Uh, There is much more optimism than the last time we spoke. Things are beginning to find a new stability, a renewed sense of hope and possibility. We're welcoming back people slowly but surely. We are keeping our visitors and communities safe. The pandemic shook retail, but so too did the Black Lives Matter movement. How has that impacted Rodeo Drive? Truly, it's a time of reckoning, of self-reckoning, you know, and responsibility for all of us. Um, How this translates into fashion, I think we're already beginning to see. There are so many diversity campaigns, the environment, sustainability, our health, and this will all trickle down to our boutiques on Rodeo Drive. This is the message that the fashion world wants to bring to the world. So we're talking about the fashion show on Rodeo Drive, the podcast. And, you know, the pandemic has created a shift from live presentations to semi-live presentations. There's also films, and these are big-budget operations featuring the clothes. Uh, Have you watched any of the presentations? Have you gone on Vogue Runway? You know, I usually try to follow all my favorite brands all the time, and I try to watch the shows. And honestly, the creativity behind these movies, the music... The scenery, the setup, it, truly, it transcends you into a completely different world, which is what fashion shows are meant to be anyways, right? They're supposed to take you on this journey. Mm. One of the most important things is to display that the clothes move. The films aren't just for the customers. They're also for buyers to see, you know, will my customer relate to that item? How do you look at that from a buyer's perspective? Luxury fashion is all about emotion. You know, we are not in the need business. We're in the want business. So it's movement. It's placement. Sometimes the character they choose to portray the garments on absolutely has an effect on the end user and the buyers. So people are very careful when they curate these films. It has an emotional effect that at the very end it turns into sales or not. That was Kathy Gohari. She's president-elect of the Rodeo Drive Committee. Fashion shows debut the clothes that we see on Rodeo Drive. But editors and buyers have not been able to travel to the seasonal spectacles in London, Paris, and Milan. 
So yes, shows have carried on, but they've been smaller with masked, socially distant spectators. Meanwhile, brands have found another way to showcase their collections, and it's a medium everyone can enjoy, film. So how did the fashion show shift to the screen? And how will that shift impact the way designers present and sell fashion? Let's start with Amy Fine Collins. She is Airmail's editor-at-large and special correspondent at Vanity Fair. I asked her to remind us why we have fashion shows in the first place. The purpose of a fashion show is to show a designer's latest collections. Now, originally it was an insider industry affair. You know, it's like dentists gather at dental conventions. And it expanded into an entirely different animal, I think, once video was introduced. By the 90s, when stylists started coming on board, when the uh, entertainment and fashion industries began to merge, so fashion shows became a spectacle, and designers wanted to maximize their exposure And they quickly learned that having celebrities would bring more attention to their collections. And it was really the Italians who started that. And, you know, first people were given clothes. Then they were paid to wear the clothes. Then they were, you know, flown around. And it just became a whole different animal. Robert Farah worked as Vogue's backstage photographer for over a decade, catching the models amidst the chaos behind the runway. But his career in fashion show photography came about by chance in the early 1980s. I remember it as clear as day. I was in Paris with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, Vanessa, and uh, we, were, we were just sightseeing, wandering along. I, I was slowly becoming a photographer then and happened to have a, a Hasselblad camera around my neck. And we were in the Marais and we saw this, this large crowd of people gathered outside a, a beautiful doorway to this, uh, seems like a, an atelier. So we walked up and, and, and as we got closer, just two people were, were holding the crowds out and they just looked at us and went, you, you're late, come here. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, and we walked through this, this crowd that parted and he said, photographers to the right. And so I, I walked in with Vanessa and there we were in this beautiful, uh, huge space with a glass roof um, full of people and the show was just beginning. It was Azadina Laya, I couldn't believe it. I mean, of all wow. the shows, of all the shows to be pulled into, and I did have two rolls of film and it was <laughs> unreal unreal and from that that moment onward i think i was smitten it was it was the most unexpected experience and the most joyous experience that i've had one of Elias' models at that time was dana thomas she went on to become a fashion journalist and author of several books most recently fashionopolis the price of fast fashion and the future of clothes the first fashion show i covered as a reporter was a Versace couture show at the Ritz. 
back when Johnny Versace was the designer, I think in about 1993. And I went on behalf of the Washington Post. And so I had been a model in the early 1980s in Paris and in Milan. And I had done a couple of fashion shows myself as Adina Laya, Agnes Bay. But nothing prepared me for a Johnny Versace haute couture show in the Ritz. They would take over the swimming pool space, which is this huge two-story, enormous underground room, like a ballroom. And, and, it's, and it was done up at the time like Roman baths, which was very Versace. And then I sat down in the, in the room and there was the, the powers that be of fashion. Many of them are still there, such as Anna Wintour and big celebrities. Puff Daddy, Elton John, Demi Moore, you know, they were all there looking fantastic. And then the clothes came out and they were all on the supermodels. So it was Kate and Naomi and Linda Evangelista and Christy Turlington and Carla Bruni just making these clothes come alive. And then you walked out and there you were on the Place Vendôme, which is the most beautiful place in Paris, in the twinkling lights. And I just thought, wow, that was an event. And that they do that event twice a year was really remarkable. For photographers and journalists like Dana Thomas and Robert Farah, the shows back then were glamorous, exclusive, and fun. We used to call it the fashion circus, and it would go from city to city twice a year. In the 90s, it felt as if it was much longer, perhaps two months each time, so four months of the year, perhaps it was a little less. Uh, in latterly, it's it's shrunk down significantly and, and compressed into you know a, a three to four week window. But yes, we'd be on the road, so everybody would be seeing each other, you know, at dinner, at lunch, at breakfast. So yes, there was a real camaraderie of moving from city to city. This was before fashion became such big business. Fashion houses back then were family-owned and family-run. Even Versace was still family-owned and run by Johnny Versace. This was before Bernard Arnault and LVMH took over companies like Fendi, before the Prada Group was founded, before Ferragamo Group was founded, before Gucci Group, which became Caring, was founded. Gucci was still owned by the Gucci family. And this was before Tom Ford was actually running the joint. So it was just smaller ambition, smaller numbers, smaller sales. Everything was just smaller in scale. Dana Thomas says high fashion took cues from fast fashion. But then the business just grew. It unfurled around the world. And and these luxury companies became global corporate brands. And there was synergy and store openings. And I think, you know, back then Louis Vuitton had two stores. And now they have, what, 500 or 600? You know, these companies just exploded and grew exponentially. And with it, so did their need to keep making noise. And one of the ways they make noise is through shows. For Dana Thomas, the shows also became excessive in another way. Well, to the environment, in part, it's because already these shows have grown to gigantic sizes. But then you have all these extra people flying in, and they're also driving cars from show to show to show. I mean, just the carbon footprint of that alone was horrific. All the noise generated on social media by these ever-expanding shows upset the fashion ecosystem and spawned even more shows. And if you could do 
instead of doing four of these a year, then let's do six of them. Let's do eight of them. Let's just keep doing them because we have more people to reach and we have more clothes to market and we have more collections to do. So you think about something like Christian Dior. After John Galliano went there, they added fur. They had women's wear. He took over the children's line and expanded it. They had the home wares. They have so much that they were working on that when he first came on, he was overseeing four collections a year. And by the time he left, he was overseeing between his house and Dior 32 collections a year. Then that net more shows. Everybody and his brother and his uncle and his pet cat were having fashion shows. It just was insane. Like, you know, you just graduated from fashion school and you had to have your show and get on the calendar. It was too much. And the amount of money that had to be spent for even a modest show was pretty much of an extortion for a young designer. And I think that's a total burnout for the designers. And I think that's been shown by the number of designers that have decided to take time out recently. So I think it's probably a very good idea that things have slowed down. And from a creative point of view, because, you know, if, if there is so much work coming out, it gets diluted. Yes, the pandemic put the brakes on the runaway fashion show train and forced many in the business to ask out loud, is the fashion show still necessary? Well, lots of people have been complaining about how the fashion show needs to be rethought. Nobody had the courage to rethink it because they were afraid it might not work. But the pandemic forced them to rethink it. Brands have staged live shows, but to smaller audiences of socially distanced, masked viewers. Meanwhile, fashion has exploded on the small screen. The Golden Globe-nominated series Emily in Paris, Bridgerton, Bling Empire, and Beyonce's visual album Black is King are challenging runway shows as forums for high fashion. This is not entirely new, says photographer and filmmaker Solva Sunsbo. There's been fashion films made forever. If you go and, you know, Man Ray made films, right? It's not like it happened two months ago, but now it's gathered that kind of momentum that it's like, it seems like everyone's doing it. Solva Sunsbo shoots fashion photography and makes films for the international editions of Vogue, the New York Times and big name luxury brands. At the European fashion houses, creative directors have teamed up with esteemed art house filmmakers. There is a convergence of different talents of artists who work in different media collaborating, which is always very interesting. And there's a great history in fashion of artists collaborating with fashion designers. And if it's happening on a high level, something creative and fascinating usually comes from it. Gucci's Alessandro Michele worked with Gus Van Sant on Gucci Fest. This was a week-long series of stories about a woman named Sophie as she goes about her morning in Milan. Everyone on screen in Gucci Fest is of course clad in Gucci. The Italian filmmaker Matteo Garone created a dreamscape inspired by tarot cards to showcase Dior's couture collection for spring 2021. For Chanel, Dutch photographer and film director Anton Corbin captured models gliding through a sparsely populated runway show. 
So these films operate as films and as advertisements, but do they actually sell the clothes? Silva Sunsbo says this is an art form still in development. It's one that doesn't even have a name yet. What I would call fashion film, which isn't really film, uh, I don't think there is a new expression for it yet, but you know, fashion film, you have music videos, so maybe you can have fashion videos. But I think a good fashion film is something between a sentence of a poem and a poem in a way, not a haiku, but it basically, you know, you, you still left loads of gaps to pour your imagination into. One of the challenges is what the story should be when the primary goal is to show the movement of fabric and how it falls on the body. What you can do is that you can kind of almost animate a still image as well, which is what I tried to do. So you're still left with a lot of things to question about what's going on. Who is this person? Where is he or she going? What are they doing? What's going on? What are they feeling? You know, all those questions you want to have. It's a brand new language. You know, people are trying to develop it. So how is this brand new language playing among our fashion experts? I asked Robert Farah and Amy Fine-Collins. There was a wonderful fashion film where the porters from the designer carried these little minuscule maquettes of dresses through an enchanted forest to various haute couture clients, um, which I thought was fantastic and, and beautifully done. If the film's done too literally, I think it just falls flat. But the customer has to see how a dress moves on a person in order to understand how it's going to feel to wear it. Robert is referring to another film made by Matteo Garone to show Dior's Fall Winter 2021 couture collection. Most of these films are quite beautiful, but one thing that I find is missing from them is a sense of humor. Yes. They, <laughs> they do take themselves quite seriously. And I can tell you there's one exception to that, and that is the film that Tom Brown did in September for his show. I mean, I was in stitches at the very end of the film. I've seen a few that have humor and, you know, Victor and Rolf did a show. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. also Moschino. Yes. Jeremy Scott. Oh, Jeremy Scott. Okay, that is the best the of puppets. all. The puppets. <laughs> yes, the puppets were genius. They were so, so good and so well executed. Amy is referencing one of the best recent fashion films. It was made by Moschino's creative director, Jeremy Scott. The film portrayed Moschino's spring-summer 2021 runway presentation as a puppet show. Marionette dolls flaunted the collection. Dolls that looked like front-row fixtures, such as Vogue's Anna Wintour and Edward Enenful, generated as much buzz as the miniature clothes. One curious thing about Jeremy Scott's puppet show, and also, I don't know if you saw Albert Elbaz's little film. He's just started a new company called AZ, backed by Richemont. In spite of the fact that they're doing something experimental and a new medium, they still feel like they need an audience. Like, the editors were there at Jeremy Scott's show. The, you know, the recognizable magazine and newspaper fashion editors. They're not quite ready to let go of the old model yet. So fashion films presenting runway collections are flourishing, and so too are fashion documentaries. 
Designers are collaborating with directors to make films showcasing their craft and creative process. Dana Thomas wrote the new documentary, Salvatore Shoemaker of Dreams. Well, here is a way you can, that we, another way of looking at how to show a collection. Luca Guadagnino, the director of Call Me By Your Name, rang me about, gosh, it's been three years ago already, and asked me if I would be willing to write the script for a documentary based on the memoir of Salvatore Ferragamo, Shoemaker of Dreams. And I said, with, you know, absolutely, without question, I would love to do this. And so we made this beautiful movie. And one of the fun parts of it, I don't want to give away too much, but one of the fun parts of it is that Luca came up with this idea of having a shoe ballet at the end of the film. And I won't describe it except to say it's a really great way to show a shoe collection. (laughs) (laughs) This was a way of telling the story of Ferragamo and showing Ferragamo's shoes without doing the, the usual, you know, either cradle to death documentary, but also we're just doing a, a film about shoes. You know, we, we really played with the idea of the life and the, the places where he was and how Lucas said, you know, think of the story, the unfolding of the story is boxes within boxes that you open a box and then there's another box inside, you open that box, there's another box inside and that you unfurl the story and these ideas and different acts and scenes not in a linear way, but, you know, more complex and and deeper. And so that's what I would say about fashion films. You know, you don't have to hire Luca Guadagnino. That might be a big ticket, but don't think linearly. Don't think like it's a runaway. That's the author, Dana Thomas. As we have heard, there is an explosion of creativity around fashion filmmaking, What, I wondered, does this mean for the future of the traditional runway show? Let's wrap with Robert Farah, Amy Fine-Collins, and Silva Sunsbow. I don't think the fashion show will return. At the moment, I I don't see how it can. Obviously, nobody can be, you know, within two metres of another person. And I think the idea of people jetting around the world to see fashion shows in four countries, or indeed in 16 countries or more... Is, is not going to happen. Um, I think we're looking at Zoom now. Uh, I believe that Zoom has revolutionized people's way of, of, of working and sharing imagery. This is such an inevitable evolution of where we were going anyway. Like, okay, let's go back, you know, say 30 years. If you were at a fashion show, the people in the seats were often sketching what they were seeing as it went by. And then people started taking pictures with their phones and then taking videos, and it became a process of watching a show through your iPhone instead of having the full live experience. So we were already halfway, two-thirds of our way there, um, having fashion shows mediated digitally. A big upside of the digital show is the inventiveness that it has induced, almost forced to happen. You know, Irving Penn said that he's not in the business of selling fashion, he's in the business of selling dreams. Um, And I think that the fashion films can create those dreams, right? So I don't think there is a contradiction there as such. I just think that in, in these kind of early days of this medium, 
we're still struggling to, first of all, find a decent name for it, because I don't think fashion film sounds so good. Uh, and secondly, I think we're just in that beautiful process of finding out what is the most interesting way of doing it. And that whole process is, is, is amazing. You have been listening to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thank you to Amy Fine Collins, Robert Farah, Silva Sunspo, and Dana Thomas. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the city of Beverly Hills, the Heyman family, to Rodeo Drive, Geary's, and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is written by Francis Anderton, with editing and audio production by Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Mandul and Callie McConnell are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Share it with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive and visit rodeodrive-bh.com for updates from Rodeo Drive. Thanks for listening. Thank you.